0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Dow Freedom Fighters podcast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, guys? Lee, uh, Dow Freedom Fighters podcast. Um, I know it's been a minute. I had to deal with back surgeries and things like that, but we're back, and what an episode to come back on. Um, we have an absolute patriot, uh, Vietnam veteran. Green Beret, special operator. You know, he was part of MACV SOG, a highly uh, classified unit. It was declassified around 2003. Um, an amazing guy who continued to to help veterans throughout his life, and and you know leaves a lasting impression everywhere he goes. Uh, Bronze Star recipient, um, Paul Schornberg. I, you know, I really appreciate him coming on. I don't think that we could have had a better guest to start us back off after being gone for a little bit. So uh, we thank everybody for listening. This is not an episode you want to miss. It's not an episode that you want to pause. This is one that you need to get somewhere where you can sit down, where you can listen, because you will not want to turn this episode off. It is that good. Um, we thank everybody for listening, for reaching out. Um, it, it means the world to us. And uh, if you listen to this, get on there, share it. Uh, so that way his story gets out there and, uh, you know, for the world to hear because it's it's definitely worth that, and he deserves that. So uh, thank you, guys, and here is uh, our interview with Paul.
1: Hey, Hey, Paul, if you could go back in history to meet – someone you had never met before who would it be uh my great great grandfather uh frederick
2: i I just there's we just everything about him and his coming to the united states and and fighting in the confederate army in texas was just it's just lost you know you little bits of it that i got from the uh um historical society of texas but nothing really
1: so where did he come from
0: to texas
2: from bavaria okay all right
0: if you were on a desert island and you could only bring two things what would they be
2: um a match and probably a good bottle of scotch
1: (laughs) (laughs) why why just the one match find
2: any wood to buy anyway so you know that would be my that would just be my my last flame out
1: okay <laughs> all right um if you were in the apocalypse and you had to choose one weapon and one animal as a sidekick what would it be uh, it probably have to be a
2: really funny monkey <laughs> and i guess i'd use my old xm 177 e2 which is what everybody calls a car 15 but they're not these were um special models and they were gas op- or uh, piston operated
0: oh cool all right and uh it's probably my favorite question right here who would win in a fight you or chuck norris me that, that, that that's who i was putting my money on too yeah i had my money on i the same
2: Chuck Chuck Norris sits around at night and he tells
3: Paul Schoenberg's story to scare his little kids. <laughs> 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 All right. Hey, I
0: still
1: I still have your calendar, Paul. Your Chuck Norris calendar. Good.
2: I'm Save it.
0: I'm It'll preserving awesome. it.
2: So. Yeah, awesome. it's a
0: classic. <laughs> oh yeah, we we put it up in the office. Good. <laughs> um. So. You know, kind of get started. You know, again, thank you for coming on. Like, we appreciate it. It um, really means a lot to us to, you know, kind of get your story out there and um, just to know you. And, uh, you know, we know a little bit about you. But to kind of give our listeners a sense of, uh, you know, the professionalism and the, the American and the patriot that you are, we really appreciate it. More than welcome. All right. So to, to kind of begin, you know, to give a backstory, just a little bit, like where you're from, and uh, you know where you went to school, and kind of what led you to join the army.
2: Um, I was born and raised in the kind of in the middle of a large cotton field, just south of uh, Gray Ridge, Missouri, which is about halfway between Dexter and Saxton. Um, went to school at Gray Ridge for the first six years, and then they consolidated with Essex. That became Richland. I graduated from there. I went to college for a couple of years, but I didn't have the slightest idea what I really wanted to do, and just wanted to join the military. Um, I had, uh, um, of course, all my, all my dad and all my uncles had been in World War II, and younger uncles in Korea, and I had a cousin that had already been to vietnam and i don't know it just it just seemed like a kind of a really neat thing to do and uh um so i didn't go back to college join the military and spent the next seven years in the military
0: all right and then what whenever you enlisted did you go in as like an 11 bravo like infantry now, or
2: no i went in as a was a 31 something it was fixed station receiver repair uh because everybody told me you know if you're if you're going to go in the military uh learn to do something that's valuable and and uh at that time um you know you still had um uh, the radios with uh and the tv sets with all the what do you call them the, the tubes and everything oh yeah and yeah. And repairing all this stuff was a pretty lucrative job to have anyway. And so that's what I did. And um, when I was in basic training, this special forces recru- recruiter came by. Um, we were, like, almost done. And so he's like, anybody wants to stay, and, and uh, after I give the spiel, you know, we'll uh, set you up to do the PT test and um, psychological and aptitude exam. And so I think me and two or three other guys stayed and uh, did that. And he said, you know, was going to change everything. He said, you're not going to go to fixed station receiver repair. You're going to go to uh, Fort Polk for uh, 11C. I mean, it's mortars, uh, 81-millimeter mortar training. And then you'll go to jump school. And then you'll, you'll go to Fort Bragg. And you'll go through the selection course there, and then if you pass the selection course, then you go through the rest of the rest of the training there. And uh, so that's what I did, and and that was when there's been various times in the military, in the army, when you could do that, when you could actually, uh, you didn't have to be uh, prior to. Nineteen sixty-eight or sixty-nine, when they lost so many people, you had to have been on your second enlistment. You had to be at least a sergeant E five.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: You had to, um, you know, all, all this, all this other stuff before you could, uh, before you could go to the selection course. As a matter of fact, it was kind of funny. Uh, uh, the guy that slept in the bunk next to me when we went through the selection course uh, was I was an E two. He was a sergeant first class with, I think he had nine years in the military. He was already a jump master. He'd already been to Vietnam. He was Pathfinder. He was Ranger. And uh, as a matter of fact, two years ago, we went to, uh, he was inducted uh, to the Ranger Hall of Fame, oh, wow. which is, you know, kind of, that's their version of uh, the distinguished member of the regiment, which mm-hmm. is First Special mm-hmm. Forces. And, uh, anyway, it was kind of funny because, uh, uh I see him at the reunions all the time, you know, <laughs> and, and I actually wound up, we went our separate ways. And then like five years later or six years later, after I finished language school, I went back to the 10th group at Devon's and he had the halo team. I was on the halo team on one battalion. He was on the halo. He had the halo team on the other battalion. And, uh, so I went with them a lot. Uh, we were real short of people there. Um, so when, when, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. But anyway, um, so I was combat diver qualified and, and HALO qualified. So I think I went with just about every team in those two battalions on just about every mission they went, unless I was already gone somewhere else.
1: Oh, wow. So, How old were you at that time, Paul?
2: when when i, went, I was uh I was 19 when i went in the army mm-hmm. and then and then turned 20 right after that and okay. i was 21 but just right before my 21st
0: birthday uh before i finished uh uh training group okay and And I think, like, a lot of people don't understand is – I mean, it takes, obviously, the physical capabilities, especially to to go through, like, a selection like special forces and, you know, the mental capabilities. But you also have, especially at that age, like, you have to have uh, a lot of maturity, you know. And I don't think a lot of people understand, you know, that, hey, people aren't – it doesn't matter you can be physically able to do it you know and but mentally it falls into that maturity level and just because you can physically do it doesn't mean maturity wise and mentally you'll be able to push yourself through that and that's mm-hmm. awesome at such a young age you're able to do that yeah.
2: yeah well you know the the hardest school i think the military probably has is the uh, combat diver school down in key west um it's brutal <laughs> i mean <laughs> but um uh, especially for somebody like me who wasn't the best swimmer going into it. <laughs> um, but um, uh, it's, you know, and all that, and this is what I always advise people was when they were going into the military, is it's it's more mental than, than everything. I've, I mean, I've seen a lot of guys that were physically much more, uh, would have been much more prone to make it than I would have. They just didn't have the, they didn't have the mental, mm-hmm. uh, the right mental uh, attitude. Well, I mean, that's a redundant statement. But they, 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 they just didn't have the mental strength or the 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 ability to turn that pain switch off, or to turn that hunger switch off, or I'm too tired switch off. They just couldn't do it.
1: Where and where do you think you developed that, Paul? You know, going in at such a young age at nineteen. Where would you say you you can attribute those things about yourself um, growing up on a farm? Where do you think you developed that?
2: I think a lot of it was uh, I've been given a lot of responsibility early. I mean, I started driving a tractor working in the field weekends and after school and all summers when I was eight years old. I started drawing. Social, I had a social security card when I was 10. And, uh, uh, it, you know, and it wasn't just the farm work. I also had responsibilities. We had cattle and horses. I took care of them. Uh, I kept, you know, the yard up. All all that kind of stuff you would expect a uh, a young man or a boy to do. That's what I did. And, and and trust me, my parents were wonderful to me. I'm I'm not complaining a bit. But I think it gave me. Um, you know when, when you step up when you're 10 or 11 years old you're doing a man's job and getting a man's pay mm-hmm. it, it changes your attitude yeah and uh i remember i was i was mowing a yard one time and I was like dad do I mower won't start and he's like well you need to fix it hmm. he said you probably know about as much about him as i do
4: <laughs> and he said,
2: you just need to learn yeah and i did and got to where I was you know over the years I was a Fairly decent small engine mechanic. I mean, uh, you know, I learned about the spark plugs and the ignition and and the fuel and all that basic kind of stuff that you have to know. And uh, it's I think I think um, I was taught self-reliance uh, mm-hmm. at, a, at a young age, and it just uh, uh, I don't know I, a lot of what I did was now they'd probably get you for child cruelty. When I was in the, uh, second grade, my dad had been wounded in World War II and was still getting treatment periodically at the VA hospital in St. Louis. And um, mom had to take him to the hospital. They were gonna be gone for three days. And uh, so I'd take the bus to my house, And I do all the chores, take care of all the animals, and all that that need to be done. Then one of the neighbors would come pick me up about seven o'clock in the evening, and take me to their house, feed me supper, get me up next morning, put me on the bus. I go to school all day, and then I go home do the chores.
0: Hmm. That's just that's just it. You know what I mean? Right. Oh yeah. That then that builds a work ethic in you, and you know that is a little bit different nowadays. You know um unfortunately but you know it it gives you a sense of i I think it kind of makes you a jack of all trades you know learning that stuff that you learned so early working on engines but i think it helped you in the long run being able to do certain things that you did yes so uh whenever you're doing your training or through your pipeline is that when you went through like diver school and learned to you know the the halo jumps and those who are listening and don't know you know the high altitude low opening jumps things like that um, was that like through the pipeline for your special forces training or was that after
2: no I think they do the halo training in the pipeline now or, or after they have finished the advanced course or the final phase I think they call it robin sage now but um no i i I, I got out uh graduated from training group i went to the seventh group um there at bragg and had a really neat team sergeant he's like uh the second day i was there he's like uh, um let's go get a cup of coffee and and i said okay so we went over and got a cup of coffee this you gotta understand I, i was just a a uh, new E five, I'd made E five out of training group and he was a master sergeant, you know, anyway, we went to the coffee shop and he's like, so what do you want to do with your military career? And I said, "I, I don't know. I hadn't thought that far ahead. He said, no, I said, what do you want to do now? And I said, well, I want to be, I want to be a good team member. You know, I want to learn because you still have a lot to learn. Once you go to a team, once you come out of training group. Right. And he said, uh, what would you really like to do? And I said, I want to go to Vietnam. That would have been in November, October, November of 1970. And he said, okie doke. (laughs) He said, uh, when you come to the team room tomorrow, he said, I'm going to ask you to go with me at a certain point. And he said, we're going to go make a phone call. I said, okay so that's what happened the next day and the lady on the other end was a name uh lady by the name of billy alexander and she took care of all the uh special forces assignments and especially for special projects and she said uh, so you want to go to vietnam and i said yes ma'am and she said okay it's done she'll said su- she said you'll have the orders in two weeks and i did and uh, then I got there and uh, signed to the fifth special forces group and we walked in and there's like probably 10 or 12 out of my training group there. And then another 10 from other places. And uh, the guy sitting there, he said, man, he said, you guys are lucky. He said, if you want to, you can volunteer he said i've got 25 openings in the projects that was studies and observation group and we're all like because we'd heard secrets you know little snippets because nobody ever really talked about it even even sf guys didn't talk about it except each other they talk about it but never in front of anybody else and so i thought man i've died and gone to heaven (laughs) i'm gonna get just exactly what i want and as my friend Don Simmons used to say, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, half of us went to, to Command and Control Central. Others went to Command and Control North. And so while I was there, I went through, uh, you go through different schools there. Like they got some new sensors in, had to go down a long time to be trained. You have to go to, to run recon. Once I went from hatchet force to recon, then you have to go to another special school. Anyway, I finished up there. I came back and the sergeant major, the B team there at Devon's, to 10th group at Devon's, that's where they sent me. And he's like, um, so what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. He's like, uh, you want to be on a, they called them scuba teams in. They weren't combat diver teams in. Anyway, he said, you want to go on scuba team? And I said, yeah. He said, well, we got a, uh, two slots in three weeks in key west and he said you go to Bragg, take swim tests and you go to uh key west for uh i think it was seven weeks or eight weeks or whatever it was school was and so i went to that that's where i got diver qualified
4: mm-hmm.
2: then i left there because i enlisted and i could choose any group i wanted to so i choose chose the first and it was still in okinawa i went there and it was an instructor i was on the scuba attachment there and we also ran um we for asia for the pacific we ran a combat diver school there but we did other stuff too and and anyway while i was there um i went to halo school at a halo school there at the first group had one there in uh, okinawa and so you know and then then you pick up stuff like in the tent you learn cross country skiing downhill skiing you learn mountain climbing um you know cold weather survival all that stuff you just pick up as part of being in on on the team that's
0: assigned there that that's amazing <laughs> that's that's a lot of uh that's a lot of stuff a lot of training and um so do you Care to talk a little bit uh, and maybe explain what the uh, military assistance command, Vietnam, the studies and observations group.
2: They were a highly classified. As a matter of fact, it wasn't declassified till, I don't know. I can't remember 2003 or something like it for pretty close to 50 years after it was over, like it was supposed to be. And back then you didn't, you didn't run a, uh, classified operation, and then write a book the next day, you yeah. know, or be on the evening
3: news. But anyway, um, <laughs> we ran, uh, we were a force
2: multiplier, which meant, and that's pretty much what Special Forces does, like in a hatchet force, uh, which are supposed to be company sized units, but there were actually uh, 36 Mountain Yards and two Americans. So if you lost a whole hatchet force company, you only, you lost 40 men, but you only lost two Americans, right? Mm, so okay. it, it, it th- that's the way it worked. And we ran, uh, we ran cross border operations into Cambodia, Laos, and North Vietnam, which at that time there was a, uh, there was a law, it was called the Cooper Church Amendment that U.S. troops couldn't run into those areas. So what they did is they farmed us out. The Special Forces farmed us out to Special Operations Augmentation, which was ran ran by Chief Sog, who was either a colonel or a lieutenant colonel, and he reported directly to the Pentagon's chief of staff and to the president. They didn't go through any normal chain of command. Uh, I mean, it just went from Chief Sog to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and then to the president. So, uh, uh, we used, um, most of our assets, uh, like helicopters and stuff. They had to volunteer to, to do that because special forces, I think they do now, but we didn't have our own aviation units. Mm-hmm. Um, and we used a lot of assets out of, uh, Thailand, and a lot of assets that were in Laos, you know, the, uh, CIA and the U S air force had quite a presence in Laos. So they had airfields there. They had, uh, they had armies. As a matter of fact, a lot of what we did in hatchet force was supporting operations for the CIA's military, um, uh, anti-communist movement in laos as a matter of fact you guys heard operation tailwind the one where they supposedly use the sarin gas
4: i have not uh, no
2: well, operation tailwind was it, it was pretty far inside and it was a it was a, a company hatchet for i think there was two or three companies that went in and um they were a blocking operation and an intelligence gathering operation for the CIA, is who it was for. Oh wow, wow. And and a lot of what we did, we did. Um, we did a lot of work for the CIA. Right. You know what I mean. Right. So, uh, the lines kind of got blurred sometimes about who you were really working for. Hmm.
1: And you were talking earlier about the teams that you worked with, and you mentioned the Mon yards. Now, those were um, like local militia, or can you explain who those people were? Um, the the Yards were the hill
2: tribesmen of Vietnam, Laos, and North Vietnam. Um, they were uh, more of a, maybe of a Polynesian descent, uh-huh. Uh And you, you not only had the Montagnards, you had the Nungs, mm-hmm. uh, the Chinese Nungs and stuff that were, they weren't, um, they didn't assimilate into the Vietnamese culture. As a matter of fact, the Vietnamese looked down upon them, um, and like you would, kind of like a second class citizen. Yeah. And so we recruited them because they were a very warlike people. And, um. They were they were very astute when it came to anything to do with the jungle because that's where they grew up right and so we trained them we had um, you know and there was all kinds of forces uh you had this uh, cidg which was, was civilian civilian irregular defense groups uh that were supposed to uh protect some of the villages in vietnam um you had mobile strike force, which was another special forces operation. Uh, Mobile strike force companies were almost the same as um, uh, the hatchet force companies, except some of the, uh, but they were reaction force uh, primarily to help with the A camps, the special forces, A camps that were scattered all over Vietnam. And then inside those A camps, you had whoever the local tribes were were the soldiers for them, and we would, we would recruit the soldiers, we would train the soldiers, arm the soldiers, pay the soldiers.
4: Oh wow! Oh, wow! Yeah.
2: Our our soldiers didn't work for the U.S. Army. They didn't work for the Vietnamese government. They work for us and for Spe- Fifth Special Forces Group.
1: How how critical do you think it was to have those people in your team as far as understanding the terrain and. Just living in that environment, how, do you, how critical do you think they were to your mission?
2: Um, extremely critical. Uh, as a matter of fact, we, we couldn't have, has, have been as successful as we were. Uh, you know, we were running in 69, 70, 71. We were running about a 150 to 1 kill ratio against the enemy. And that's fighting. That's you know, recon teams and hatchet forces fighting uh, company uh, and battalion-sized units. Wow! So w- we couldn't have done it. As a matter of fact, if you you know, if if we had had leadership, political leadership, who would have looked at the books of, of, of what happened to the French when they were in, in Indochina mm-hmm. in the late fifties and and into almost sixty. They would have seen that the most successful operation they had were was a thing called mobile guerrilla. And most of that the Legion ran, the Foreign Legion, And, and Mobile Gorilla is exactly what Mike Force was. Only Mike Force was different. A lot of the Mike Force units were airborne qualified. So they could come in and drop in two or three companies of Mike Force troops with American leadership and um the main asset for having the Americans there was number one to get them paid, it, but number two was uh, to call in air support.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so when it came to actually operating those missions, you, uh, you know, you or the other American, were you guys actually giving commands to that team, or was it kind of like, was there a direct leader in those groups?
2: There was, but they would, the Montagnards would always defer to the Americans. It okay. was never, well, and one thing you learn real quick is, is when, when the shit hits a fan. Yeah. Um, you do whatever your leader tells you to do. You may argue with them when you get back to base, but you don't in the field. You know, you you just, you just don't do that because everybody had. you got to be doing something. Even if it's not exactly what you need to be doing, you can't you can't do nothing expect to survive. Oh,
1: mm-hmm. well, Paul, I, I'm curious to know from you. You know, um, your experiences in Vietnam. Obviously, anytime someone goes into combat, you learn lessons along the way. Um, whether it's through leadership, um, or sometimes it's when you're you're in the uh, role of following. Could you possibly tell us in your experience, one of the most important lessons you learned while you were in Vietnam and how you might've applied that later on during your time there? Um,
2: It's kind of hard to explain, but you know how, you know, how, uh, um, you, you, you okay they've done a lot of studies on people that are in special forces and I can tell you that almost every one of them are very A-type driven personalities yeah absolutely um, and so you can take 12 of them and put them in A-camp and you're going to have 12 different ideas about how to do something they're going to argue and they're going to fuss and they're <laughs> going to fight among themselves. But you let somebody say anything bad about that team, and you got twelve people going to come down on your ass. Yeah. Right? And it kind of gets back to like what I was saying. You 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 know you you have to understand that you have to work as a unit. You you may not always. Although I formed formed some really good f- close friendships with some of those guys, you, you know you may not you may not like exactly like what they're everything that they're going to do. But you have to understand, in like in Vietnam, like in Saug, you might have a you might have a sergeant E five as a team leader and a captain as his assistant Mm -hmm. carrying the radio Yeah, because it, it went by experience and the person with the most experience was the guy that had the team. Yeah. And so you learn to respect that. And, um, like I said once before, you know, and we have all these immediate action drills we ran for if we're hit from the front, if we're hit from the side, if we're hit from the rear. And you do them, I don't mean you just go practice every once in a while. Yeah. You do two and three, four times every week till it just becomes so ingrained in everybody that it's exactly what it says it is. It's an immediate reaction to whatever the situation is and and what the what the reaction is is to put as much suppressive fire on on the direction that your the incoming fire is coming from that it gives you chance to break away and regroup or break away and move to higher ground or break away long enough to get covey to get all the assets he can get up because we didn't have, there was no artillery for us. Right. You know, we couldn't call in mortars. Um, we were so far inside that we couldn't even talk to another relay, um, a radio relay. We had to talk to an airplane, which was only overhead every so often to. And so like if, if you got in contact when Covey was on another station, then you had to run for your life until Covey got king back up. So Covey that's what we call the guy in the O two of the O V ten. Right. And until and it had a, a pilot, Air Force pilot, and a very experienced saw guy in the right seat, and that was called a Covey rider. Um in, until he got back up. So you were you were on your own.
1: And so the Covey was also there, I guess is He's the one that's calling in extractions as well, correct?
2: Yes. Because he has to get the, we have what we called launch sites, uh, usually like at Doc Peck or Toe, one of the old A sites along the border, and that's where they would be fueled. But then it was another, sometimes it was another 45 minutes from that launch site
4: hmm. to
2: where we were, and then they had to orbit You know well i'll tell you what happened to me once me and Bobby Strag, we had inserted we had contact almost 20 minutes after we inserted but we couldn't get x-filled because the helicopters were
1: still going back to the launch site to refuel so they could come back and get us oh wow and do they and they they have radio comms with them but they still have to refuel to have enough fuel to get back correct right okay and have you ever been in the position to be covey or or were you always on the ground
2: no i was always on the ground no all those covey riders were guys like old stevens you know who had i guess he had like four years in sog and eight years total in vietnam
1: Hmm.
2: wow
1: i'm you know what's running through my mind i guess in my own previous experiences is you know this covey guy he's very experienced and he's a leader how stressful, I'm wondering, in his shoes, if he sees you guys in, in the stuff and all he can do is, you know, call it in, but he can't do anything up there in that aircraft other than be your eyes and your ears. You know, he can't come down there and do anything about it. To me, I'm just thinking of how stressful that position would be as a leader sometimes.
2: You know, I don't know. You'd have to ask one of them, and there's not many of them left now. But Right. Um, they drink a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: So uh you know, uh, I had a had old Sergeant Major tell me one time doing we were at club drinking and he's like uh, You know why you drink? And I said uh, I don't know. He said,
0: You drink to forget, but he said, I'm old. I drink to remember. Mm. Mm <laughs>
2: so always always thought about that
0: um so as far as you get all this leadership and and you spend your time in the military and you you get out you get oh um you know and as you're getting out and as you're kind of building your i guess repertoire of of being a leader, was there somebody? In particular that kind of helped mold you into the leader that you became yeah
2: um when, when i first got to hatchet force uh the the there was two e sevens already there uh walter shoemate and paul Shepard. uh walter shoemate uh, he uh, I, I worked for him again in okinawa for a couple of years um he was um uh, the dive tower at Key west is named for him. I mean, he's quite the legend. Mm. But anyway, they were—they were Project Delta guys. So you got to go back to the first of Vietnam, back in our early. We, you know, we had Special Forces guys there in early, early '60s, and there were things called White's White Star Mobile Training Team, and that was in Miles. And then you had—they started the projects, and you had. Uh, Delta was probably the first one, not not Delta Force, but Project Delta,
4: mm-hmm.
2: um, and you had all these guys in there like Shoemate and Shepard, Dick Meadows, Billy Wall, um, and they became kind of the um, kind of the roadmap for running reconnaissance on the ground in Asia and then after them they they just kept doing a little bit stranger stuff and stranger stuff and you had uh project sigma omega and then they started in probably 66 sometime they started uh, uh, the command and control south central and north and that's when it really got strange so- but they were uh Shoemake was one of those kind of guys where he would um, he would tell you just enough that he thought would get you going. And he would give you just as much responsibility. Well, He would give you a little bit more responsibility than what he thought you could handle comfortably because he liked for you to be uncomfortable all the time. And he would do things like um, we um, – He woke me up one morning about 3 o'clock by just coming over to where I was, and he just grabbed my arm and started above my shoulder and just started kind of squeezing it until my eyes popped open. And I'm like, yeah? And he's like, first of all, I need you to take a squad of yards and go find a a helicopter big enough to get two helicopters in at a time, find an LZ big enough to get two helicopters in at a time. And he said, didn't you know, mark it on the map and come back and show me. And, uh, I did. And he looked at me and he said, you sure do I get two helicopters at a time? And, uh, I said, yeah, I said, pretty sure you can. And he went, you just bet your wife on it. You know that, don't you? If we don't get out of here today, we're not getting out. And I was thinking, oh, damn. You
4: know,
2: <laughs> yeah. and we did. It did, and we did. You know what I mean? And But that's just, these guys were, uh, they were tough. I mean, yeah. they weren't, there was no uh, touchy-feely, warm hugs. Well, you know, you did the best you could do. It's going to be okay, soldier. There wasn't no days like that.
1: Yeah. And, and two, you know, kind of even relating that back to what you said growing up as a kid, in a way that's kind of what you were used to is, is given yeah. given the reins and then uh, expected to figure it out, and so yeah. maybe that's part of why you know you gravitated towards him as a leader. Um, it's something you could relate to. And and correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't Walter shoemate, Isn't he legendary for his mustache as well?
2: Yeah, as a matter of fact, <laughs> right before he passed away, they shaved it off, and it's on uh, it's in uh, JFK Special Warfare Center somewhere. Oh,
1: wow Sonoma. wow yeah. and I, I think I might have seen a letter with a comb too what's yeah. that about
2: um he actually when he I could never grow much of a mustache but anyway he in his own way he was a very um uh, uh he's a very charismatic kind of person yeah and we became we became very close over the years but even there um I remember one time. Um, we'd had a little issue and and um, gotten a firefight. There's a picture of him. We're sitting on a log, and he's kind of in a way chewing my ass because I shot the four LZ watchers, and he's like, you know, if you'd have brought one of those guys back, we'd have gotten um, we'd have gotten a um, all expense trip to Taipei or to Bangkok for a week, each of us. Hmm. You know, he said you couldn't have just wounded one of them. You know, and he's kind of, it's, it's kind of a joke, but he was, he was, but he was, he was serious in a way. And so anyway, when he got ready to leave, he gave me his mustache comb. He had mustache wax and a little mustache comb. Yeah. And he gave it to me kind of as a joke because I couldn't grow a mustache or shit. (laughs) But you know, there was just something about it. He gave it to me and I kept it all those years. Yeah, You know, and a lot of the stuff that we've sold has gone into collections and Jason Hardy wrote the books. And so there's a lot of pictures of this stuff in there because nobody ever knew this stuff would exist, It mm. had existed. And it's kind of funny, you know, I mean, you go for forever and until these books started coming out, some other things happened. Um, nobody paid any attention to Mac into SOG except the people that were in it. And right. we go to the reunions and sit around. Everybody go, you know, hey, these fucking old guys. You know, well, what what they <laughs> do? But um, but he, they were, uh, you know, he like um. I was getting ready to come up uh, for my re- first reenlistment, and he called me and he said, "If you want to reenlist and come to Okinawa, he said, you got a job on my team anytime you want it." And so that's what I did.
1: And, and so, post-Vietnam, um, if you don't mind walking us through what that was like.
2: It sucked. Yeah. Um, the downsizing of the Army, um, there was a lot of things that went on. Uh, some of the upper military uh, establishment kind of got an inkling about SOG. And they started this thing that we're going to try to solve for war crimes uh, because we ran cor- cross-border operations. And anyway, we we still had enough friends in high places that they, you know, they kind of took care of that. But it was just, um, you know, they started closing groups because we couldn't get enough people to fill them because they weren't there weren't enough people coming in the military. You know, when you, when you look at when you look at, you know, they, they talk about how many people have to uh, go through the selection course to, to be able to fill a slot. And they talk about numbers like, you know, 150, 200 people mm-hmm. to, to, to volunteer to get to the point where they make it to the selection course, then make it through the next year, year and a half training before they ever get to a team right and then all the training that has to go
3: on once they get to a team and, and see once you get out training group and you go to a team a team can either decide to keep you or they can reject you right right and if, if
2: if if you come out of training group and a team says we don't want this guy on our team good luck brother and if you don't find a team they ship your ass off to some unit somewhere
1: well also, too, Paul, during that time, I mean, from my understanding, just talking with other veterans that may have been, even just enlisted post-Vietnam, I've heard veterans say that they kind of like snuck off to the recruiter's office because it wasn't very uh, glorious to go sign up to join the military right after Vietnam. No.
2: No, they did the same thing to us. They did to the guys, you know, in, 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 in Iraq and yeah. uh, Afghanistan, and especially especially for all the teams like, uh, I got a, I got a guy, active duty seventh group guy just lives right down the street from me. And another guy that I'm real good friends with, um, uh, and they're, you know, they're going through the same emotions that I went through 1972, three, four, five. I mean, I can remember, I remember sitting there watching the news one night, uh, in 75 when you know they said that they were evacuating saigon they were pulling out of vietnam yeah and uh you know you just you just you just pissed mad at the world yeah anyway um i forgot what the question was but yeah there's there's a lot of parallels between what's going on now and then and you know especially now in the military we're, we're doing all this woke stuff uh which i don't understand but um <laughs> It was, it was tough, and, and they started making all these stupid-ass rules, you know? I mean, here I was I, w- I, w- I was. I made E-6 in three years and two months, right? And I was coming up on my, well, I was in my seventh year, starting my seventh year of active duty, and I would have made E-7 that June, right? Yeah. And, and so I was already on the fast track to make uh, sergeant major by the time I had 12 years in the military. That's not bad. No, that's pretty uh, good. Uh, and the the army came out with this new rule that if you were in special forces and once you made E seven, you had to go to a line or airborne infantry unit for a year. Well, I'm gonna tell you something, guys. The only thing I'd ever done with special forces. That's all I know. Right. Yeah. I can't march. I don't know nothing about it. <laughs> you know, if 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 you got a if you got a special forces uh, group of guys together, and there's twenty five of them there, you're going to have twenty five different kinds of uniforms out there. Mm-hmm. And you know, best soldiers in the world, but boy, they don't give a shit about any of that other stuff. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I in in slots in special forces units were so hard to come by the reason I kept getting slotted back was I was halo qualified scuba qualified. I'd been to the, uh, the year language course at Presidio Monterey. Um, I was Sadum qualified, which was the old man, portable atomic bomb thing, sixty mm-hmm. the, uh, the, uh, two kiloton dirty bomb suitcase bomb, <laughs> you know, and, and all this other stuff. And, and, you know, I, I was just scared to death. You know, you take a year off and you go to a regular infantry unit somewhere, and then how the hell was I going to get back?
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm sure... I don't know how that went for the guys that did do that, but it just, like you said, it seems like it would go over about as well as a turd in a punch bowl. Um. It did. <laughs> and, I, I, I,
2: and what happened to a lot of guys, so I got up my seventh year, a lot of guys went ahead and did it, and then first thing they knew... They were stuck in that line after a unit for mm-hmm. two years, three years,
1: six years. Yeah. You know? And you don't get younger. And I'm sure it gets no. harder to get slotted, like you said. Um,
0: so, yeah. Oh, wow. So, you went to Bud's, correct? Yes. And uh, I th- that, that, that
2: was back when it was still uh to plan well, it's kind of hard to explain um you, you still had some udt teams uh-huh. and then you had seal teams so the, i can't remember exactly what well, numbers just really don't come to me dates and numbers but i think it, i think the whole course was six weeks or seven weeks and you had the first week and then you had like six or seven weeks for the UDT. well for everybody and then the ones that were going to go to SEAL team, then they went on and went through Hell Week and then the rest of it. And then, see, the reason I did was back then, and I don't know if they even do now, but SEALs didn't have, the Navy didn't have any MOS schools. Special Forces had them all. They had the COMO schools. They had the medic school. They had the weapons schools, they had the engineering school, right? And so SEALs were periodically like we had two SEALs that went through our MOS training with us and then they went back to the SEAL team. And uh, so the change off was since we're doing all this stuff for them, they're going to do something for us. Well, they ain't got nothing except (laughs) muds. So what they did is they said, okay, well, send your guys to the to the two weeks of buds when they have the Emerson, the closed circuit, that's uh, rebreathers that don't make bubbles, and um, something else. I think they were still doing they were doing the CCR one thousand, which was an advanced over the Emerson. The Emerson was left over from World War Two. And so what happened was when I said, okay, like you want to go to it? And I'm like, okay, I don't care. And because I was a PT instructor at the one in Okinawa anyway, so, it, you know, the physical part of it didn't scare me. Well, I got there um, like two or three weeks before we were supposed to, when they were still in the first phases of it, still doing their open ocean sw- swims. And so the guys like uh, at the Navy place, he's like, "Well, I guess you're gonna have to go back to Okinawa and come back." Well, you gotta understand, Okinawa was like one of those 15-hour flights, yep. right? And so I said, "Well, I'll just I'll just stay and hang around." And he said, "We well, can't just hang around." I said, "I'll go I'll go through the course with the guys. It don't matter to me." <laughs>
3: well,
2: <laughs> then you got a problem because I'm a chief, right? I just made E six, not too far long before that. Well, an E six in the army ain't no deal. E six in the navy's a big deal.
4: Yeah, yeah,
2: right. I couldn't. They told me. you said, "Well, you can't stay in the barracks with the students. You got to stay over in the BEQ, and you can't eat with them. You got to eat at the Chiefs Club, Chiefs mess." And I'm like, "No." So we went on around that, and. Uh, Anyway, I I went ahead, I went through, and they they were easier on me than they were on the students, you know, because I, I knew most of the instructors. <laughs> but I just went ahead and went through it, and they gave me when I graduated, they gave me a, a plaque and maybe a, a an honorary UDT guy. So
0: that's awesome. So uh, you know, as you you know, you're talking, you know, getting out and, and transitioning, and I think. Even now, one of the big things that we see with, with veterans getting out of the military and transitioning, you know, is it's gets really hard to, to, to find maybe your purpose or something that's – you're never really going to find anything equivalent to probably what you did in the military. But to find something that may give you a little bit of purpose back, do you care to kind of talk about as you transitioned out of the military maybe what you did or what helped you kind of get back to find a purpose to – being successful, like, like you know, that we know you and, and things like that? Um, well, there's,
2: there's, there's a lot of hills and valleys in that. Uh, first of all, probably with what my mental makeup was at the time, it probably wasn't the best idea for me to get out. And if I did get out, I should have transitioned to – something even more if i could have more para military like the border patrol or the agency or something like that yeah um and kind of sad because i had a lot of contacts in the agency that's but anyway i didn't and so uh, yeah you know it, it, it was just it, it it took me a long time to come to grips with You know, it's never going to be like it was before. Yeah. And, uh, but I did. It took a long time and it took a lot of soul searching. And I was fortunate. Um, After I got out of the military, I started a construction company and got involved in agriculture. And things were really going well till the the late 80s, early 90s hit and interest rates went to 14.5%. Well, I'm going to tell you something, guys. If you're working on 10 percent profit margin and interest rates are 14.5 mm-hmm. yeah. percent, you've got a problem. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But um, but I was able to to recover from that and go on and and you know everything and then probably the best thing that ever happened to me was um, I was working for a company in Cape. Thought they were going to move or go out of business. I thought, well, I'll go over to the VA. We're, they told me, my drill sergeant told me we'd have benefits for life, right? And so I went down there, and the people at the hospital weren't very nice, especially Sidney Wartenberger. <laughs> Hand up. Uh, but there was this one guy that was down where the police office used to be. His name was, oh, um, yeah, well, shit. I'll think of it, Oh, John Kirkpatrick, and he was a DAV guy, and he started talking to me, and he's like, you need to go back to school, and I was like, "I ah, are you my GI Bill, and he's like, no, he said, looking at your DD-214, he said, we're going to get you a service-connected disability, I didn't even know what that was, so anyway, he filed the paperwork, and I don't know how he did it, but you know, it like, I swear to God, it was three or four months later, he called me and he said, uh, he said, I need you to come back over to Popper Buff and talk to me. He said, we got your disability through. He said, could you set up with Folk Rehab? He said, you can go to school. He said, you can start here at Three Rivers. And he said, I'll get you a job here at the hospital. So I went and talked to him and i told Wes his story before, you know, it kind of boils down. I said, man, I'm, you know, I was like, i don't know at that time i was like 38 years old and he's like uh, i was like it'd take me three years to finish i'll be 41 in three years and he said yeah but he said in three years how old are you how old are you going to be and where are you going to be if you don't go back to school
0: mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: and so i did and the man didn't lie he had me a job working in the kitchen there at the at the va as a an nitnoid, and uh uh but they were they were so good to me you know i, I can't ever stress that enough sharon moss and and uh, them she, that was before they had night schools and all that um so you had to go to school during the day and they would make my schedule around my my class schedule and i always got 40 50 60 hours a week if i wanted to work and I always did so and I did that for uh, about a year and a half and uh, got my bachelor's degree. And then at that time they had started a, uh, uh, William Woods had started where you get your, uh, no, I got my associate's degree. William Woods had the thing where you get your bachelor's degree. I was working for the park service then, had I, a had I, over at Van Buren. And went in and got my bachelor's degree in 18 months and then started my Uh, master's degree and by the time I was working for a phone company out of Cape got that and just kept on going
0: that's awesome and I know uh, I remember the the first time I met you I had just got out of the Marine Corps and I believe you were doing like voc rehab stuff then and you know got me on housekeeping and uh, you know it's and my dad he, he He's always like, "Hey, you gotta, you got, you need to go talk to Paul." You know, and you know it. You all know, oh, look super professional. You know, I had no idea that <laughs> you were this, this. You know, your everything you've done because you were so humble and professional, and everything. And then like getting to know you a little bit, and you know, your background. It was extremely humbling. You know, you're out there continuing to help veterans, and as you continued to do until you retired, it's it. Always a, an honor to, uh, you know, to know you and talk to you and, and to have you help me get on to the VA. And, I, I, you know, I always appreciate that.
2: Thank you very much. Um, and I do, I, I appreciate it. But John Kirkpatrick, the DAV guy, who probably wouldn't recognize me if, you know, if I walked up to him on the street. But that man changed my life forever, you know. And I thought, how great would that be if I can just make some difference in a veteran's
1: life? Yeah, um, you know, to help them. And and uh, um, it's that was the compensated work therapy program, which is still there. Miss Swatter, I guess, still runs it now. I hope she does. Yes, um, she does.
2: But and does a phenomenal job of. Um, but uh, you know, I've I've been. I've tried to be very proactive in, in helping veterans and kind of spreading the word. Um, even I've had some instances of where I've had the ability to um, affect uh, who's been hired at the VA. And it only, Vicki Slaughter was the only instance where it was a non-veteran that got the job and uh that was because i'd known vicky for years i knew what kind of young lady she was and i knew she had the heart for it so and there weren't any veterans she was in competition with it was between her and someone else um so you know i i uh i, I really uh am thankful for that um because it's it's you know you you hire somebody um it's, if, if you hire a veteran and you have a good chance that that veteran is going to be very, uh, first of all, they, there's a lot of the learning curve that they don't have to go through, especially if you're in mental health. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the problems you hear about all the time from veterans who are involved with VA's mental health is they can't keep the same provider for very long. Right. you know constantly changing providers and then they're they're mad because they have to tell their as they say tell their story all over again yeah and it does you know um and and then you have guys like, uh, like Wes West that comes in and you know just does a knockout job and I don't know he's probably chief of mental health by now I hope not I hope <laughs> I'm almost sure can do some good but, yeah almost <laughs> I'm almost there um <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: don't do it. It'll make
1: you crazy. Hey it's like crossing over the dark side from enlisted to officer, isn't it? So
2: worse than that. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, I will say this about Wes too, is you know, when I came in as, you know, the peer support and he you know, I was able to get back there in office with him, you know, and probably sit in the the seat you sat in and obviously it's an honor to be in that office you know we hung up chuck norris but he really has guided me and put me under his wing and helped me and and helped me learn um all kinds of stuff about you know mental health and and things and it it does help that we have a really close personality and, and find a lot of the dark same dark humor funny so but but he's and he shares a lot of stories you know how you you know mentored him and he's done the same with me so yeah he's he's an awesome guy
2: And you know and that's one of the things that that i love about uh, um ex-military people is you know they came up through the ranks even even if you want to be a captain less you still had to come up through the ranks somewhere right you know and uh, but no seriously uh you know you you veterans just have this affinity for other bre- veterans, and and I really have always uh, I th- I, f- I find it I always thought it was a privilege to have as many veterans working for the VA as we possibly could. Yeah. Um, some people don't share that thought of mine, but oh well, they just have to get over it. But, <laughs>
1: uh, well, it's like you're invested in your own health care, you know.
3: Yeah.
0: Exactly.
1: And if you're invested in that piece of pie, you're likely going to want to see it be successful. So.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's kind of – while, you know, Del Day and myself, you know, when we started Dogs of War, you know, a lot of it did stem from a lot of the things that we've seen you doing with Veterans Paul and, you know, we want to try and do our part, you know, and – uh, so that you know, we started obviously we as an apparel company, but we are. Everybody told us we were doing everything backwards because every profit we made, we turn around and give it away. So you know, Robert, Robert wakes like, why don't you guys be a nonprofit? So we're like, oh, well, that's probably a good idea. We do that. COVID hit, and like literally couldn't do any events, couldn't do anything. So we really you know got on the podcast where you know we can get other veterans on or other people on to share their stories. And, you know, kind of help bring a light to the darkness to, to you know, to our veteran community and, and, and things like that. And you know, so we look up, you know, to you and things you've done and uh, and it's helped spur other things. And I think that's really awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of funny. That's how the Ralph Johnson thing got started back
2: years ago. <laughs> I, saw, I saw this advantage of using Facebook because I could reach out to like Every VFW and American Legion post uh, within 50 miles of West Plains was one message, right? (laughs) It was one Facebook message, and the VA would not allow. I couldn't have a Facebook page for me. I had to make a fictitious name to do it and then tell everybody who it was. Uh, to, to keep from, I mean, getting in a lot of trouble. They were like all kinds of been out of shape about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But anyway, sometimes you, uh, you have to persevere. That's right.
2: One way or the other.
1: Do you mind telling us the Ralph Johnson story of how Ralph Johnson, the alias Ralph Johnson got started?
2: Well, Ralph was Ralph Johnson's dog. Uh, Ralph Johnson got killed in action and then he had a dog that was left behind and we called him Ralph Johnson well we just called him Ralph but anyway Ralph Johnson and then um we we had uh, we had kind of as we went along and we had a really hardcore ex uh, former project delta guy by the name of Walter Simpson had the coldest blue gray eyes you've ever seen in your life. I mean, that was, that was the only person the whole time I was in the military I was ever really afraid to talk to. <laughs> and so he, we were, we were standing outside one day and, and he said, Hey, Schoenberg. I said, Yes. He said, uh, isn't anybody supposed to do something? And I said, I think Johnson's in charge of that. He said, really? He said, one of those FNGs? Oh, he didn't say FNG. He said, and I said, "Uh, yeah, Johnson's one of them. And he said, you tell him to come see me as soon as he gets a chance. So it'd go on for two or three days, and I'd be walking across the compound. Doc Simpson would go, hey, Schoenberg, you tell Johnson to come see me? I said, I did but I think he just had to go home on emergency leave. <laughs> well, this, this went on for like three or four months. And I got sent back to the States. And so years later, I'm sitting in a restaurant in Dyersburg, Tennessee, one morning getting ready to go to, do, I'm doing some contract work for Dow Chemical Company. And I look over there and this guy is staring at me. And I knew who it was by the eyes. I walked over and I said, "Doc." He said, "Paul." Anyway, so we hugged each other, you know, and we start talking about shit. And he started laughing. He said, "Remember how you used to pull that Johnson shit with me all the time?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh yeah." I said, "We talk about it at the club, you know." What- <laughs> The recon company club, and, and and everybody just laughed. And he said, That's funny because he said, I talked about what a dumb shit you were trying to bullshit me with that story <laughs> over the <NCO> club. <laughs> and, <laughs> so the, just kind of
1: funny. and the legend and he, lives on.
2: Yeah. And he, the, there was some stuff happening <clears throat> towards the end, and I actually wound up. My team, Arkansas, we ran the last team, last mission to be ran out of there. There was a cross border mission and things didn't go too well. And anyway, we got back and and he's like, uh, you know, I ought, I ought to court martial you for what you did. I said, well, you can if you want to. You know, I don't care. But at that time, makes shit to me. He said, I told you to be careful. And I said, we were careful. He said, no, you aren't. And anyway, so it went on and boy, he was just, he was, he was mad. So anyway, when we were finishing breakfast that morning, he had tears coming down his face. It's hard for me to get through this one without doing it myself. And he said, uh, when you ran that mission, he said, I knew that was gonna be the last mission ran out of Command and Control Central. And he said, "It seemed to me like you were bound and determined to get yourself killed." And he said, "I couldn't stand that." He said, "I couldn't stand was somebody else." Mm. And uh, I
1: just thought that's kind of neat. Yeah.
2: He didn't hate me. He actually kind of liked me. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: You know. So, wow. but he was—he uh, was a good guy. Lived in Trenton, Tennessee. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes it's hard to see that until later on down the road.
2: Yeah. 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 You know, and and uh, it was just, eh, it was kind of a. You know, we 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 have a lot of uh, we have a lot of our people that the bodies still haven't been recovered. You know, because of the type of operations they were. If you if you got a six man team and you get one wounded and one killed and you're running for your life it's kind of hard i know it's supposed to be the no man left behind but you know we make it very clear to our team members that if i'm if you know if, if i'm incapacitated and i can't walk and you you're you're under fire you know just shoot me and leave me
1: yeah because you're, you're valuable to them and and if you're still alive, you're valuable to them even more, right?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's actually been things where they've um, – if they have a wounded wound, – one I mean, it's only happened a few times, but where they have a wounded team member, they'll stake them out on the on an LZ, you know, knowing that somebody will come back to get them.
0: Yeah. So. Well, Paul, man, I can't tell you – uh thank you enough for doing this and um it's an absolute honor you know to talk to you and and hear your story and and allowing us to uh be the ones you know kind of with our our podcast to get that out there and it really means a lot you know it's always good to talk to you um you know i you know i get a brag to people that you know tomorrow that hey i got to talk to paul you know and and everybody that, you know, Wes and I work with, you know, wanted to tell you, you know, they, they miss you and, you know, they hope you're doing well and everything. And we absolutely appreciate the time you've taken out this evening and uh, to talk to us, really do.
2: Well, uh, it's been my pleasure. And, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in SOG come about in the last, especially eight or ten years. Um, and, and to the point of there's even a lot of SAWC reenactor groups now. Yeah. Uh, there's even some, there's even one in Poland and a couple in Great Britain. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, uh, periodically I'll get calls from somebody or a text, hey, you don't know who I am, but I'm so and so. Anyway, there, I got this one call from this uh, guy, and. Virginia, that's part of a Sog reenactment group, and he's gonna be me, right? <laughs> and to and to the point when I was on RT Ohio, Recon Team Ohio, uh, to the point of he's got a picture of me in my web gear, and he he sent me pictures of it. It looks almost exactly like my web gear did. I mean to the little film canister taped to the stable rig with the morphine Surrettes in it and, uh, the, the mini gas mask. Um, and even, he even asked me the last time he taught me, he said, when you wrap stuff on your staple rig, do you wrap it clockwise or counterclockwise? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I told him, I said, I don't remember. <laughs> was there. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I think that'll be interesting to see, you know, um, is that something I guess in the near future they plan on doing like, or are they already they, reenacting types of
2: we've been doing some stuff and every once in a while I get some stuff and the next time I do, I'll send it to you Wes. Okay. I, I got, yeah. I got your, your work email and stuff. Yeah. If, if I don't die of some kind of mold infestation between now and then <laughs> from we're getting from working building four for so long. <laughs> Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, but anyway, no, I I appreciate it, and you know, um, there's um, there's an old um, uh, Viking Norse legend that says, uh, uh, you know, a man's never dead until no one speaks his name again.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I don't know how true that is, but I always found it kind of. I'm, I'm I'm especially infatuated with Valhalla since I've used my uh, my fictitious allegiance to Odin as my reason for not wearing a mask. Uh, <laughs> yeah. because uh, If I die with my face covered in shame, I can't enter the halls of Valhalla. <laughs>
4: yeah.
2: And, you know, every clerk at Walmart has bought that. Of course, we don't have to wear a mask <laughs> anymore, but yeah. back when everybody was doing it, you know. That was going so, to be
1: my next question. Is who have you had to explain that to? Yeah, so it sounds was, like the clerks at Walmart.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay. And they're all like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I even asked." Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great. That is great.
2: Of course, Florida. You know, God bless Florida. You know, this this is the only this is the only I think one of the few states in the union where I can go into the bank arm with a 40 caliber and 23 rounds of zombie max ammunition <laughs> wearing a mask yeah
1: yeah you won't get second looked at either will you
2: no they don't give a shit <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: man. well paul the,
4: we're
2: gonna the let funniest, you what the funniest I, I gotta tell you a real funny sure, story sure sure i went in to pick up a pizza little caesars we got the best little caesars here and sometimes if we just want something to fill the void you know we just go to Little Caesars and get one of those pepperoni cheesiest pizzas, you know, were uh, uh-huh. Anyway, so I'm in there and waiting, and, and I'm like second in line or third in line, and there's this crazy woman running around in there talking and stuff. And you can tell she's a meth head, and she's yelling at the poor manager and all the guys working in there. And she just gets real mad. And she starts, she's trying to pull this knife out of a sheath that's in her purse. But the knife has gotten wedged in her purse and she gets it unbuckled, but she can't get it pulled up to get the knife out of there. So the manager's watching everything. I'm standing behind her about four feet. And I just very quietly pull my 40 Smith and Wesson out. (laughs) And I'm standing there, you know, because when she clears that knife, I'm going to tell her to drop a knife. She's going to not drop a knife because she won't. I knew she wouldn't. Then it's just going to be it, one of those, you dream of it a headshot and a heart shot from five feet away. <laughs> <laughs> and she got frustrated and ran out the door and went running down the street. Anyway, they called, the cops had her in 30 seconds, you know. And so the guy, the guy that's the manager of the place, he gives me a free pizza. <laughs> Two orders of chicken wings and enough dipping sauce to last us for the next 10 years. <laughs> so That's to great. be prepared has its, has its monetary reward here.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> oh, uh, but anyway, thank you guys for calling. Appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Yeah, West. me too. Proud of you, Wade. Thank That's you. You're good.
0: Thank you, sir. That means a lot to me.
2: I'm proud of Wes, too, but I've, I've watched you kind of do a little bit of more, more bouncing than, than Wes has done. Nothing yeah. bad, nothing bad, but, you know, it's yeah. okay.
4: Yep.
2: And, you know, I'm a firm believer that if, if, you, if you trust God and you listen, he'll put you where you need to be. Absolutely. And not where you think you want to be, but it'll be where you need to be.
0: Oh absolutely. I'm I'm very blessed and I feel like that's that's where I'm at right now. Like getting to do what I get to do, it's it's pretty awesome. And getting to do it with guys like Wes and, and have a pretty good boss to answer to too, so Yeah. Cool. Okay. You all, all right. take care. All you right,
1: too. Take care, Paul. Thank you. Okay.
2: Right. Good talking to you. you bye bye.